Our text this morning is this magnificent, panoramic, cosmic vision from Romans 8, the New Testament lesson. And the text is, believe it or not, a traditional reading for this day. It is in the church's system of readings, what we call the lectionary, for the day of Pentecost. And by way of introduction to this text, I want to frame matters, frame them with verses 16 and 17, the opening of the text. There we're told that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. To receive the Spirit is to be adopted as a child of God. And... If children, Paul says, if children, now notice how his mind works. As we said last week, Paul is an eschatological man. He belongs to the future. If children, then heirs. Paul goes right from your adoption immediately to the end, to the coming glory. If children, then heirs. Inheritance here is a future reality. Our inheritance, the Apostle Peter says, is reserved for us in heaven. Paul thinks like this because he's thinking about the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, but the Spirit is himself the first fruits of the age to come. That's what the Holy Spirit is, the down payment, the pledge of our inheritance. Thus, this instinctive thing that the apostle does, if children, then heirs. If children by the Spirit, by the first fruits, then heirs destined for the full harvest, the full inheritance. So at the outset, we can see how magnificent, right? how excellent and unsurpassed. I love the line, the phrase from our opening hymn today, Holy Ghost, dispel our sadness, which speaks of the Spirit as the best donation that God could give or man implore. This donation is the unsurpassed gift of God. Now, you might still be able to ask a question here, though. And it's an important question. How can it be, or why is it so, that the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance? Right? The, the foretaste of our future glory. And the answer to that is quite simple. Because the Spirit is God. God without remainder. Right? Not some impersonal force. But the God of the future, the God who is to come, coming to dwell with us, and God is our inheritance. So then, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. Right? When does Christ come into his inheritance? At the resurrection of his body. Which is when you will come into your inheritance. What about the meantime? What about this time we live in? The time between being children who are heirs and actually inheriting. 
The time between having a down payment and having the whole enchilada. Well, Paul tells us. He says, we will inherit, and it's a sobering word, right? Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the apostolic summary of the meantime. Suffering, then glory. And glory here refers to the the unveiling, the full unveiling of our status as children. The full possession of your inheritance. Children, then heirs, suffering, then glory. So that's the frame. And with that, I want to make the three points, the three additional points that really unpack the frame. They're in the back inside page of your bulletin. The creation, the Christian, and the spirit. So first, the creation. This is Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Again, notice, notice, suffering, or the sufferings, it's plural, of all sorts now, glory, singular, later. Glory to be revealed. To be revealed. We saw last week that the sons of God are now hidden but will be revealed when Christ appears in glory. Now, so great is the glory that is in view here. This is no meager, partial glory. So great is the glory that Paul has. So rich and thick and deep and incomprehensible is the very word glory for the apostle that he says all the sufferings of this age... All of its holocausts and exiles, cancer and death, and the sum total of all human and natural misery, all the disorder and the trauma and the horror are not even worthy to be compared to the coming revelation of this glory that he's speaking about. It's an audacious vision. It seems preposterous. The glory to come will dwarf the significance. It will shrink to the vanishing point all the sufferings of the age. So much so, Paul says, that it is unworthy to try and compare them. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, momentary Light affliction. Now, we might question this a little more if Paul wrote all of this from a comfortable ivory tower. But he knew a personal array of suffering and misery and imprisonment and anguish that few human beings know. And he talks like this. Those sufferings are momentary light affliction and they produce 
the eternal weight of glory. That's why suffering and glory cannot be decoupled. Suffering produces the glory. For the creation, he says in verse 19, waits with eager longing. I mean, who would not be eager for this singular, incomparable glory? Sometimes, I think if we're honest, we would say, well, we're not that eager for it. Sometimes it seems like the whole church is not particularly eager for it. But creation is eager for it. And the picture here in the original language is of the creation like up on tiptoes, straining, peering, longing for the glory, which is here called the unveiling or the revealing of the sons of God. Again, we saw last week, the sons of God are revealed in glory when the Son of God is revealed in glory at the end of the age. There's a very important text here that's related to this, which you should be familiar with. It's 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, there's the now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's the glory to be revealed. For we shall see him as he is. The revelation of the sons of God means that full disclosure to the world of your identity. The full investiture of the children of God with their glorious inheritance. And this comes when Jesus comes. It comes at the resurrection of the dead. Right? Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of sons of God have died. They have died in obscurity. They have died as martyrs. They have died as saints. They have died as weak. They have died in every array and station of life. When will they be revealed in glory? When you will be revealed in glory. When the Son of God appears in glory. So the creation is in this state of expectation. And Paul tells us why in verse 20. Because, he says, it was subjected to futility or to frustration. Not by its own choice, but God subjected it. It's it's part of the curse. It's a reference to Genesis 3. There's a kind of futility, a frustration on the created order. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, it remains on our bodies, on the ground. It affects our relationships, our life. And this curse is not removed. It's born for us, for his people on the cross, but it's not removed from the ground until Revelation 21 and 22. Again, at the appearance of Christ. After the final judgment. You know, it's deeply telling here. The word for futility that Paul uses here is the Greek equivalent of the word for vanity used in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. It refers to this ongoing, vaporous, 
transient, ungraspable existence of creatures in the fallen world order. It's a word about the unmanageability, the vaporous quality of life. You can't get it. You can't grab it. You can't control it. You can't shepherd it. You don't manage it. It manages you. Even when you think you're managing it, it's managing you. This continual repetition of the sun, the turning of the seasons, which for all of their beauty, grind the whole human race into dust and bones. That's what vanity means in futility. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, the preacher says. All of life partakes of this transient puff of smoke existence. And this remains true in the New Testament because Paul just said it. James says it as well. But the creation is subject to this kind of futility in hope. Paul says, in hope. What's the hope? The hope is that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. This is not moral corruption, right? The creation is not in moral bondage. This is natural corruption. Corruption that pertains to the nature of things. Corruption here means the cycle of death and decomposition. Relentless decline. The creation longs for death to be destroyed. So that it might obtain, Paul says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is that freedom? Well, it's freedom from corruption. It's freedom from death itself. It's the freedom the children of God will have when the glory is revealed. When those who suffer in this age are glorified with Christ. So let me summarize, because Paul is dense, I know. The creation looks for man, human beings, men and women, it looks for the human race, the, the, the leaders, the crown, the head of the creation, to be raised in glory, liberated from death and corruption, so that it will be liberated from death and decay and decomposition. That's what the creation is hoping for, on its tiptoes for, straining toward. In other words, the creation's hope is the same as your hope. It's the same as the church's hope. It is the blessed hope of the church, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Calvin, John Calvin, in his his characteristically clear way, summarizes this verse. Listen. He says, there is no element, no part of the world, which... Touched with the knowledge of its present misery, is not intent on the hope of the resurrection. Right? There is not a single blade of grass, right? not a single grain of sand, not a single element, not a single atom, which is not touched with a sense of misery and intent on the hope of the resurrection. So what does this look like? Again, like I said last week, this sounds like crazy talk. Or maybe better, what does this eager longing and waiting in futility and hope, what does it sound like? 
it sounds like groaning. What else could it sound like? It sounds like groaning. For we know, Paul says, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, not a part of it, all of it, has been groaning together collectively in the pains of childbirth. It sounds like loud groaning until the present hour. It's a symphony of groaning. So this is the bottom line. Creation groans. All of it. All the time. The good, the bad, the ugly. Beautiful sunsets, groaning. Lovely vistas, groaning. Human and animal violence, groaning. Tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, groaning. Solar eclipses, groaning. Beautiful spring flowers, groaning. All things bright and beautiful. All things mangled and mauled. All of them groaning all the time. Because the creation is still marked by death, by bondage to decay and corruption, by repetition, by the same scenes over and over and over again. Because the creation has not realized its hope, the freedom, the glory, the incorruptibility of the sons of God. And the groaning is acute. It is loud and it is incessant for those who have ears to hear. Did you hear any on the way to church this morning? I mean, does anybody hear any of this? We're walking around death. Paul hears it. I can tell you that. He hears it. It is groaning like the pains of childbirth, he says. It's there for those who have ears to hear it. It's groaning to give birth to a new order. Creation groans, but it's not alone. Christians groan, which is our second point. Verse 23. Not only the creation, Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves. There's a kind of sense of shame we could have here. Calvin, again, the excellence of our future glory. Calvin understands that the glory here is future. The excellence of our future glory is of such importance even to the very elements which are devoid of sense and reason, that they burn with desire for it. How much more, he says, how much more should we, who have been illumined by the Spirit, aspire and strive for the attainment of so great a good? In other words... The mute, sub-rational creation is groaning. Why are we not? In fact, we should even more so. I mean, do we? You have to be dense to not be taken up into this persistent, pervasive, loud symphony of animal and human 
animate and inanimate groaning. Many of you I know are groaning. This resonates with a lot of the saints. What causes us to groan? Well, unlike the created elements, we have the spirit, the first fruits, which is the pledge of an inheritance. And therefore, Paul says, we groan eagerly. Notice that in the text. Having the spirit, we groan as we wait eagerly. So the creation groans in these pains of childbirth, and we are groaning. The creation waits eagerly, Paul says. Now he says, we wait eagerly. Again, he's hammering the same point, but here's the question. Well, what are we waiting for? He tells us. He tells us. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're eagerly waiting for. That's what we're groaning for. Our inner man is renewed, Paul says, but our outer man decays. Our bodies are still caught up in the same web of decay and corruption that the creation is. When they put this body in the ground, you know what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 15? He says it's sown weak, perishable, corrupt, dishonored, mortal. So he's piled up terms here. They all are saying the same thing. So if perhaps you're confused, I'm going to summarize all of, these, all of this language of the apostle. Your inheritance, the glory to be revealed, the revealing of the sons of God, the hope of the groaning creation. These are all synonyms for the resurrection of the dead. The time of the redemption of your body. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, in this tent... Paul considers your body like a tent. It's a temporary tabernacle. In this tent, we groan. We groan, longing to be clothed with our immortal, heavenly dwelling, swallowed up by life. Paul says the same thing, Philippians 3. Your citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a Savior who will do what? who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. There's no gym membership that can do this for you. This is what we're groaning for. This is what having the first fruits of the Spirit causes. And it's really quite simple. It causes this because it unites us to the glorified and coming Jesus. It cannot be otherwise. This, the text says, is the hope in which we are saved. Right? Which is not to say that we don't have many earthly aspirations and desires. But the Christian hope, right? The singular towering hope is the consummation, the redemption of our bodies. Paul makes it clear in this passage that what he's speaking about is holy future. He goes on and says, now, hope that is seen is not hope. You can't see this. Besides, Paul says, we don't look at things that are seen. Things that are seen are temporal. We look at the things that are unseen because the things that are unseen are eternal. 
This hope is not something someone can see now. Who hopes, Paul says, he asks a rhetorical question, who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, notice, the creation groans, Christians groan, and stunningly, the third point, the Spirit of God groans. This, well, the Spirit, Paul says, helps us with our weakness. Notice that's singular. Not weaknesses. It's not a text about the Spirit helping you with your various human foibles. It's a singular, whole weakness that afflicts all creatures and the whole creation. It's the weakness of being in this state of waiting and groaning and suffering. The state of frailty. The state of ambiguity. The state of hope. The state of having a perishable and corruptible body. The state of decay and death. Of having the beginning, the commencement, but not the consummation. Right, of being enlightened by the light of Christ and still seeing through the glass darkly. In this state, Paul says we often have no idea, no idea how to pray or what to pray for. It's not that we don't pray. It's just that our prayers are not Paul's prayers. We grope, right? We're hindered by the situation, our weakness. But he says this. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. Your weakness is a singular whole. The Spirit's groanings are repeated, plural. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is spectacular news. You know, and it's also remarkable. I mean, even if we say that the place, you know, the the site, S-I-T-E, the location where this groaning occurs is in our hearts. The text makes it plain that it is the Holy Spirit's groaning. It is the Spirit's groaning in and with ours. This is God in the groanings of the world, groaning with the world. Groaning under, groaning in and through the world's pain. Groaning in and through your inarticulate moans and sighs. And it means that prayer in this age is groaning. It is suffering. It is entering into the world's trauma. And the world's birth pangs. It is marked by longing for resurrection. These are to be the fundamental qualities or characteristics of what it means to pray. They are not, but it is, they are for Paul. You know, John Murray, the great uh, Scottish New Testament scholar, said, We have two intercessors. We have Christ interceding for us in heaven. And we have the Spirit interceding in the theater of our hearts. That's the best news imaginable for creatures like us who don't know how to pray, who are afflicted with weaknesses. This is an astonishing passage. And you know what else? It's commonly recognized that there are certain critical passages in Paul that just can't be placed along other passages. They do too much work. This is one of them. 
You can't take this text and place it alongside other texts as if this text were pointing out an interesting feature of Christian existence. This is a comprehensive, sweeping text making cosmic claims about all of reality, indeed about God himself. It's a framing text that sets other things in perspective. You'll recall that last week on Colossians 3, I spoke about this displacement from earth to heaven as the missing ingredient. And we spoke of what it looks like, right? It looks like Jesus' earthly life, and it looks like Paul's earthly life. Well, you know what? This text today is what the missing ingredient sounds like. It sounds like groaning. That is Pentecostal Christianity. So let me close. I'm going to close with two points, and I'm going to call them with and without. That's with and without groaning. So with, with, groaning is not a distinct fruit of the Spirit. It's more basic than that, because it's with everything. Groaning is more like the fruit basket. It's not the fruit, it's the fruit basket. It's the space in which the fruits of the Spirit operate. Groaning, beloved, is what happens if you have the Spirit at all. So love and peace and joy. We have these fruits of the Spirit in measure, of course. And yes, with them, we groan. Notice the text. It says that in groaning, in hoping for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. Patience, a fruit of the Spirit, is produced in and with and by groaning. We want patience, a lot of us. We don't want groaning. But the two are inseparable. They don't compete with each other. You know what patience is without groaning? It's just a pleasant, earthly-minded passivity. Patience without groaning is not what the fruit of the Spirit's about. And you know what groaning is that doesn't produce patience? That's like apocalyptic madness. That's being a crazy person. Groaning produces patience. It produces prayer, right? Prayer that's oriented to the end so that. Paul's great prayer, so that you can stand pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Right? Groaning produces sighing, inarticulate, too deep for words, prayer. Right? It produces the Apostle Paul and his apostolic mission. So that's life with groaning. What about without? Here is, I think, the elephant in the room. Like last week's text, the first thing a person who reads the text carefully should think is, is there, in fact, anything like this in our Christian existence? I know, perhaps some of you are thinking, of course there is. I'm groaning like this all the time. But it can be hard to hear. 
And it often seems like it's an absent thing. Crickets, right? You, you listen, for the, listen for the groaning? At, at, in any event, there's very little of it. It could be more than we realize. Often it's just under the surface. There's a sort of recognition that sighing pervades living. And you know what helps here? Age. (laughs) Because we see our bodies wear out. And hopefully that means groaning increases. Suffering, of course, helps. Dying helps. Spend some time around dying and suffering Christians, you get closer to the groaning. Aging, as I said, can also be a factor, but I want to make it clear, right, uh, a kind of longing to be young again (laughs) or a kind of bemoaning of things or a kind of nostalgia for one's youth is not equal to groaning. Right? So, right, we're not talking here about bemoaning things. I do plenty of that, right? This is a spirit-induced groaning. So I'm going to close, and I'm going to be pointed here. It's very simple, the logic. It should cross the mind of any reader of the text. If groaning is produced by the spirit, and it is absent, we have good reason to ask if we are even Christians. All right, there are, according to the Apostle Paul, precisely zero non-groaning-for-glory Christians. Right? Not Christians who acquiesce to these beliefs or who check some box concerning them, but Christians who have entered into an anguished, passionate longing that the creation itself is in, that Paul says all of us are in, and that the Spirit of God himself enters into. Again, this is not groaning in general. This is not even wanting to go to heaven. This is yearning for the coming of the fullness of the new creation and the redemption of your body. Calvin, again. If groaning is a burden to any... I mean, how could we live groaning like this all the time? It's too too much of a psychological, emotional burden. Calvin, if groaning is a burden to any, they are necessarily overthrowing the order which has been laid down by God. It's the order. It's the way to glory. In this groaning, through this suffering, through this weakness, with the created order, onto the fullness of embodied life. So what's the remedy here? Perhaps you think, I'm groaning all the time, or perhaps you think, I groan some. Some of you may think, I don't know, I'm not sure. Well, the the remedy is the very source of our groaning. The divine groaner himself, the spirit. So here, my advice is very simple. Be filled with the spirit. Seek the spirit. Open yourself up to the spirit. Invite the spirit. Welcome the spirit. Drink from the Pentecostal spirit. Pray by the spirit. Freshly engage the word in the spirit. The spirit's job is to show you the face of Jesus, the risen, glorious Christ. And if that is real, it must produce yearning. It must renew your hope, refocus your orientation. 
yearning for the consummation of all things, for the fullness of your inheritance, for the glory to be revealed, for the redemption of your body. Blessed are those who, being poor in spirit, groan in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen.